what is your competitive advantage? What weapon do you have? What tool? What moat do you have around your brokerage that is really competitive? Because if you look out there and you see so many brokerages with same splits and, and then, then it's just a race, what do you call a race to the bottom? But it's a race on the bottom of splits rather than a race to the bottom of rates, right? So figure that out. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation, Scott Peckford here. Thanks for checking out this episode. Before we jump into the episode today, if you're a mortgage broker, loan officer, and you're trying to figure out, man, how do I get realtors to refer me? How do I stand out? We've just released a new workshop called The Perfect Realtor Pitch. And in it, we show you a really simple four-slide presentation that you can use to communicate value, build trust and rapport, and more importantly, get referrals. I've literally got stacks and stacks of testimonials from clients who have used this in a variety of markets to get referrals from realtors that they just met or knew but were stuck in the friend zone. So you can check that out at perfectrealtorpitch.com. That's perfectrealtorpitch.com. Check that out. Today on the show, I have Dan Eisner. Dan is the CEO and founder of True North Mortgage. True North Mortgage is a massive mortgage company based in Canada. $2.2 billion they funded in the last 12 months. They're a machine of a business. And I have been meaning to interview Dan for some time, and we finally connected. And we connected actually over a topic that I thought was interesting is he talked about the J-curve in terms of if a successful mortgage agent who's funding you know, 50 or $100 million a year decides, you know what? I know what I need. I need to build a team. I need to bring on a bunch of agents. And we just talk about how when you decide to make that leap, you're no longer just focusing on origination and sort of how that you can see a dip in your income. It's a very interesting conversation. But before that, we dive into his whole story of where True North came from, how he bought the business for $6,000, how he was offered money on the Dragon's Den and then turned it down. And then kind of the vision and where they're going with True North today. I really think you're going to love this episode. Check it out with Dan. And thanks, Dan, so much for taking the time to be with us on the show. Tell me, like, when did you get into the mortgage business? And that would be my first question. And the lead off question is what prompted you to launch True North? Because it's a different model than the traditional broker builds. But I'm curious about those two questions. So um, back in 1999, I was about to go off to MBA school. And I said to my wife, I don't know what I'm going to do after my MBA school, but one thing's for sure. I'll never be a mortgage broker. That's what you said. Yeah. Famous last words. Yeah. And that's the only, I didn't say doctor, lawyer, whatever. I just said mortgage broker. And so I I never intended to end up in this field. I did my MBA at at Ivy. I graduated in 2001 and right in the middle of the dot-com bubble. I had a nice job, but then was laid off and I was unemployed or underemployed for like three years. Eventually, I gave up because I was living in Mississauga at the time. I eventually gave up, came back to Calgary, and a buddy of mine introduced me to mortgage brokering. It kind of fell apart, that company. So I actually ended up buying it for that brokerage for $6,000. I actually bought a brokerage for $6,000. The name of that brokerage is, or was, True North Mortgage. Really? So you bought it for six grand. That was a deal, man. I bought a brokerage or a part of an office once for 40 grand and it blew up within three months. So yours has done much better, I have to say. So you bought it for six grand. What year was this? This would probably be 2004. Okay. And then what was the model that you adopted when you first started? Oh, no. It was like, I don't want to be a mortgage broker. I want to be a consultant. I've been trained to be a consultant. What the hell am I doing a mortgage broker? That was the model, right? And so I did a little bit of my base, but most, I was looking for a real job the entire time. And eventually I got one at Grant Thornton. I became a consultant at Grant Thornton for about a year. And that was 2005. And it turns out I was a shitty consultant. Okay. I was too opinionated. Right. 
Some so, people are better entrepreneurs than employees. Like honestly, yeah. like I, I think I'm, I would be a terrible employee. So that is exactly what I found. So I figured, okay, well, I'm going to go back to mortgage brokering because it's kind of like the only real skills that I actually kind of developed. But this time I was going to do it what I deemed the right way. Okay? And that for me was opening a store. I mean, back then brokering was for people with bad credit. That was the idea. And I wanted to really demonstrate to the world that we are for good credit. So I opened a store with salaried staff. I had my rates in the window, which was a PowerPoint presentation at the time. And it was in the, I'm not sure if you know, Calgary plus 15. It's a walk by traffic, a lot of like a mall, indoor mall. And people would walk by and they look at this rate and they kind of stop and they'd see these rates and they're comparing it to TD and the RBC. And then they're like slowly come in. And that's how I started. And I figured this is the way to get good credit clients to realize that brokers actually have some really good rates. We're not just for bad credit. And right on the back wall, I have no fees, great rates. It was kind of my first slogan. And because that would be the first question, what fees do you charge? Clients don't even ask that question anymore. But back then, that was a big deal. And then after six months, I was auditioned for the Dragon's Den. That's what they call it, auditioning. And I was, they filmed it in May. And then we went through the diligence the next summer. I had a really strong summer that year. And the value that the Dragons were giving from my company was less than cash value by the time it kind of got around to it. So I, I said no to that deal. And I'm glad I did, I guess. Right. Okay. So we're going to back up a second here. So you started your model, your thinking was storefront model, AAA borrowers that kind of don't understand the, you know, we haven't educated the broker or the community that brokers have other options. And then addition for the Dragon's Den. So what was that like? Because I'm curious about, do you go on and pitch to like producers first and then you get to go to the show? Like how hard was it to actually get it was on the show? actually remarkably easy. I'm not sure if it's still easy, but it was remarkably easy. So you pitch to a bunch of producers who know nothing about business. And then that's it, you're on. <laughs> like they have everybody come in one week, they film everything in one week, okay? And then about half of the episodes they actually air. So I was lucky enough to get aired. But the only reason they put me on the show is because I did my MBA at Richard Ivey School of Business, which is where Kevin O'Leary did his. And they literally right. said that, oh, okay, we're putting you on the show because Kevin O'Leary. I figured I wasn't attractive enough to get on. So that's about the only way to so they found a connection and then they did offer you the, a deal though, right? Yeah. yeah. And what was the deal? I'm just curious. I can't yeah, it was about. 50% for $250,000. Yeah. So now would you take that deal? Because if you do, I'm in. Like, let's do it. This is Kevin O'Leary moment. <laughs> yeah. Not even close. Not I, even close. Then I wouldn't take, I didn't take the deal. So Right. 250 grand for 50. And at that time, what was your primary role in the business? Were you working the storefront? Were you just trying to, focusing on recruiting and, no, no. when I first started, I mean, I was actually pretty desperate. So I've been unemployed and unemployed and barely had a job for like five years. Okay. And, and I had a little kid. My youngest son was born a week after I was laid off in 2001. So I had a mortgage, I had a kid. It was okay. And then crazy. I decided to have another kid and then quit my job and start this business. So I had about $30,000 in my pocket at the time. That was my life savings. And I used it to fix up this store. And the landlord gave it to me because it was empty for the last two years. So he's nothing else he was going to do with it. And we put carpet in and I painted it myself and all sorts of stuff. But I worked in that store. And over the years, my, my role started with doing mortgages myself. And in my second year, we did about $100 million. So it was me and one other person. We did about $100 million. And I personally did over a thousand deals myself, which still resonates. I, I still understand the client 
mentality and the client experience, and it still echoes in our policies today, that customer service, really understanding exactly the feelings of a client. Now, this is hard for me because I've been called autistic by my wife. So, so My wife says the same thing about me. She calls me <laughs> scottistic though. She yeah. says, she's my own version of autism, right? It's like this awkward, curious, awkward, and it's like, oh, why can't you focus and pay attention to things? <laughs> right. And I learned to speak to people by selling them mortgages, okay? Right. Because you, you know that you, you, the client goes through this emotional experience through that purchase process, right? They go through it and it's a big deal for them. It's a big deal. It is a bigger deal for younger people and it's actually younger people that are more likely to show up in our stores, okay? Not older people who could do it all online. It's, just, it's really a dichotomy there. A lot of people assume, well, the young people like to do it online, the old people like to do it in the stores. No, exactly the opposite because the young people are so nervous about this process. So they want to see you face-to-face, eye-to-eye. So that's how I learned <laughs> my social skills is by being able to read people's minds as they walk in. And my, my favorite one is uh, bridge financing. Right? They'd always walk in and they have this stress on their face and they're like, ah, I have this terrible problem. And as soon as they said that, I knew it was bridge financing. Right. Like, no, no, you don't understand. It's I have two houses at the same time and no one's ever had this problem before. Bridge financing. No, no. They have to get it off their shoulders and tell you what their problem is. And then you say, oh, wow, that is a big problem. Here's bridge financing. And you knew it all along, but you, I learned that you had to just let them express themselves. They had to feel heard. And then you come up with a solution and say, here you go. Right, oh, right. Yeah. And if you do that a thousand times and you yeah. start, so, okay. So what was your first year like in production? I'm going to ask some questions about like, where did you, you remember? What you yeah, it was um, about 40 to 60 million about there. And it was with one storefront, right? Did you have, or did you have more? When did you decide to open up more of them? Well, the idea was to open more of them right away. It was actually very difficult to get landlords, it still is actually, to get landlords to lease to us. Why Um, is that? I I have an idea, but I want to know what you run into. Yeah, so it's, um, we want high quality retail space. Well, you're a professional service, like you're a dentist. We'll put you in the dentist hallway. Or the accounting hallway in the mall, right? And no, 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 we want to be in real retail space, right? And so that getting their mind shift around that was really hard. I know in the broker business, we're kind of a big deal, but in the retail business, we're just really small, right? So trying to get retailers, although the tables have certainly turned under COVID, uh, trying to get retailers to the malls to actually even have a conversation with us. It was never about negotiating the rent. We'd go in, I, I remember having lunch with a retail representative. And I said, you have an empty space. And we're having lunch. So this is already a relationship. Uh, What do you want for that retail space? And she said to me, I want $150 a square foot. And I said to her, okay, I'll give you 200. Okay. Will you let me in? She thought about it and said, no. So it wasn't about... It wasn't money. It was about, they wanted to have a certain type of businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And they never think mortgage broker. That never crosses their mind. They think flower right. shop, they think jewelry, they think, you know, all this sort of stuff. I had a buddy who tried to do that in our town. And the problem was, is the bank had a contract. And so you couldn't, there's no other financial service. You probably have run into this where you, oh. you go to a mall and they're like, CIBC has it locked down. There's, there's no one else coming in there that sells financial services. Is that, have you seen that as well? Oh, for sure. That, when we go to a new landlord, sometimes the representative, the landlord representative is, wants us. And we, the first thing we say to them, don't even bother. We're not going to bother negotiating. Go check with your current tenants first. Let's not even bother with running up a lease because way too often we come up with a lease and we negotiate the terms 
and then it gets kicked out because of a bank conflict. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing that happened. Okay. So how many stores did you guys grow? What was the path like? So it was, went from store one. When did you open store two? And then- uh, I wouldn't, I'd have to go through my, but probably like year three, it was, took a while to get to store two. And I made a mistake in store one. Store one only had uh, two desks and you always have to have at least three because you need a training desk. Like it's impossible to grow that way. Anyways, went to store two. Then we opened up three in Toronto and then a couple more in Calgary and then a couple in Vancouver one in Halifax, Edmonton. I'd have to really go through it to see what time and all that worked out. But so kind of went. So then what right now do you guys have for storefronts? We have 11 storefronts across Canada. And then the other big evolution was in 2016 when we became a CMHC approved lender. Right. So you have your own kind of lending option. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which we underwrite ourselves. It's not a right. white label solution. It is us. It's just hundred percent you guys. Okay. So in terms of, I'm just curious about your business model now. So how much of your business model is, what did you say is from storefront versus online? Like has it shifted more since the consumer has changed or is the storefront still a valuable thing to do? It's a seriously hard question to answer because clients don't, I mean, they don't shop at Best Buy because they have locations. They, they don't shop at Best Buy because they have a website. They want it all. Like, and so when we look at the data and try to, did you come in? I mean, I remember once being in a store and a client walked in and, and they have a rate supermarket printed sheet with our name circled walking into a store. Okay. Is that because we had a website? I mean, because what would have happened there is he would have gone to rate supermarket, saw us, okay, gone to our website. So then our website's key and then come to look the lo- closest. So you have a location and it was like, Right. So is it because we have a location? Is it because we're on the race? I, I don't know. Like, so it's really hard. All I do know is that right now, COVID has really shut down all our stores, of course, but we're still super busy. Maybe that's because people don't expect us to be open, but conversely, okay, you're thinking, okay, well, mostly it's online then. Well, conversely, when I looked at the numbers before we opened our Imogen store and after, because we do online advertising in Calgary and Edmonton equally. So it was a really good case study to see what does a store do? And we saw a five to 10 fold increase in our Edmonton business once we opened our Edmonton store. Right. Well, those clients weren't even coming into the store, but why? Anyways. Right. Uh, I see what you're saying. So the physical location helped the online business in that yeah. region. So it's sort of like they were linked. I think it's, it's about trust. I think clients make a rate is half of their decision. But you don't even get to talk to the client. There's not even a discussion if they don't trust you. You can have the lowest rate on the planet, but if they don't trust you, you can't get anywhere. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then I may ask some, if there's the questions you don't want to answer, you can just tell me. I have a tendency to be like, that's the autistic side that my wife would say. I'll ask questions and you'd be like, I can't really, I don't answer that, but I will ask them. And what does True North look like in terms of volume and as a company? What are you guys doing in a year? We, we were kind of trending, like, if I look at the last 12 months, we're about 2.2 billion. Right yeah, on, on trend for this year. Well, no, just actually, that's what's booked over the last 12 months. On oh, trend this year, probably like 2.5 billion. I see. Okay, so your 12 months is 2.2 billion. Yeah. And the, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it. So what percent of your business would you say is your guys from your own lending side? And how much, because yeah. I'm just wondering how much of a benefit it is having your own lender versus going out and, you know, brokering. It is um, at least half our stuff ends up with Think Financial, our own lender. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Thank you for answering. You don't have to. If you're like, Scott, stop. 
you know, no, you, I you don't answer it. So, okay. And then the thing that kind of prompted this or just reminded me, Hey, I got to get Dan on the show is that you had recently shared this whole J curve thing. And so yeah. why don't you explain the J curve, what it is, and then we can talk about how it relates to what I've seen numerous times, what you've seen are very successful salespeople, mortgage people going, I know what I need to do next. You know, I'm making 400 grand a year. I'm going to open a brokerage and maybe it makes sense, but I've seen often it actually doesn't make sense, but we can discuss that. So tell me about the J curve. So I think it's kind of the skill set, intelligence, insight, ability to get to, I would say, call it a 40 million or 50 million, whatever you want to call it. That same person becomes really bored just doing mortgages every day. Okay. It's not challenging enough. So that's what gives them to, they, they bring to the spot and they're like, okay, I can do these, be all the stresses of mortgaging they can deal with and they, they got it down. They got their path down. And these guys, they deserve the money they're making. The reliable, they answer the phone, all the things, they process it. Okay. So then they come to this point where they're like, what's the next challenge? Okay, if you're a $40 million group, what is your next challenge? I mean, look at Dustin. Okay, just Dustin himself. I don't know what Dustin, I'm sure Dustin had a pretty good brokerage volume. Yeah, he did. It was close to 100 million. He was 100 million. You were talking about Woodhouse, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Why write a book? Okay. Right. Like a, that can't even come close to the money he was making actually brokering. Why would he waste his time writing a book instead of doing brokering? But I, I know the answer is Dustin was seriously bored. Okay. He right. needed a next challenge. So he did it, even though it was destructive to his financial wellness. I mean, right. maybe you need mentally, obviously, but so if you take that broker making 40 million, let, let's say they make $400,000 off that 1%, whatever, whatever number you want to use. They have some marketing costs. Maybe they have an admin paying 75 grand and you have some office costs. You're probably taking home 250 to 300. Yeah, that's pretty fair. Right. And life is pretty good for you, right? Like you have one, maybe one, maybe two assistants. You're not dealing with a ton of HR issues, which is all you deal with as you get larger. Okay, compare that to what uh, Gary suggested, 300 million. And maybe that brokerage has a better pay 1.1 because they get more volume bonus. I don't know. Like, it's been a long time since I've had to play in that world. So 300 million, okay, so now you're bringing in 3.3 million bucks, but then you're split. I mean, if I, I guess when I wrote this article, I was assuming maybe there's a 20 split, okay? But as I asked around, it's like, closer to 15, which is even less. So your actual net revenue is only $500,000, okay? But then you have your admin staff and to run a team of like 20 or 30 people that would need to generate that. You're having three admin staff, probably, especially if you do some sort of central underwriting thing. And you have payroll and you have office expense. You're probably making between 45 dollars to $100,000 profit, which is a big step down. And the only way the brokers kind of offset is that by doing their own deals. Okay, so they're spending half their time managing this brokerage or more, but really making all their profit doing their own deals just so doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. You know, I've noticed this. I've talked to some, like I said to you before, I've interviewed people who got the bug because they got bored. They're like, ah, oh, well, there's got to be another challenge. And that's a good way to think of it, actually. And then they open up a brokerage, they bring on agents, and then they you have one or two models. You either go for a model that you try to recruit top agents already know what they're doing, but that means they're going to squeeze you on split. Oh. They ain't getting 85-15. They're like, dude, I can go anywhere. I don't, you don't, I don't even really need you. And so then you get smaller margins. 
and or you decide I'm going to go and train a whole bunch of people and you bring on new people and fast forward five years later or two years later, the ones that are, a lot of them are not going to make it. The ones that are good are going to come back and they're going to squeeze you on the commission every time. And I can guarantee this is the case because if we did a poll and I love mortgage broker, he said, how many of you are with the person that hired you today? The vast majority of them are not. And the reason they left is for a whole bunch of a litany of reasons, but finance would be part of it. The fact that there was a better deal that they could have, they learned it. And so I agree. I had a friend who did a 300 million. He was doing like 25 million. Then he got to 30, 40, opened a brokerage. He was really good with people doing 300 million a year. He still was, he would have netted more doing 40 million in his genes than running a $300 million company. And the stress of it, because you like uh, Butler described as becoming adult daycare. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, we have over a hundred employees here, right? There's a lot of HR issues that come up. Yes. Right. I can imagine. So, and you have a a whole team to support that. So not only, you know, you've got your people that work on with clients and you got all the stuff in the background. And so if you could give, I'm thinking about this, if you could go back and give yourself advice. So back when you were opening that first shop, what would you say? Like, what would you tell yourself? Because you kind of chose the path of you wanted to build a business, right? Like you were not going to be the guy on the phone every day doing the sales, but what kind of advice would you give yourself? So I was always been, actually, I was a reluctant entrepreneur. Like some people, it's kind of like a celibacy. Some people choose it. Others have it thrust upon them. <laughs> that's, the, that's my take on entrepreneurship. Some choose it. Some have it thrust upon them. I'm in the latter category. I, I, I wanted to be that consultant. Okay. I tried. Right. I kept on getting rejected. So I come at it. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm fearful. I'm a fearful guy. And, and so what I'd probably say to myself is just have confidence in yourself and go faster. But I, it may have been you maybe a month ago or someone on the I Love Mortgage Brokering asked the question, if you weren't mortgage brokering, what would you That was me, yeah. I was just like a... I didn't respond, but mostly because I don't even see myself as a mortgage broker. I see myself as an entrepreneur. And as an entrepreneur, you try to, well, as Jess Bezos says, you know, create a monopoly. But really, it's talk about competitive advantage. What is it that gives you a competitive advantage? What tool, what weapon can I have that my competitors don't? And I remember in um, my trajectory with, with mortgage brokers, are I, I was unknown. Then I was on the Dragon's Den and I was a bit of this darling guy and I grew. And then we really tied up with ING and, and we had this fantastic relationship with ING. And we did over $600 million with ING, just ourselves. And there were, there were brokerages who went to ING and said, if you don't stop that relationship with True North, we're going to stop sending you deals. And ING's response was, True North sends more than all the other brokers combined. Right. <laughs> so we're not going to stop. And that was a weapon. I had this weapon that I could beat brokers over with a great featured product, great brand, and a great rate. It was just, that's 2012. It was a fantastic year. And then all of a sudden, ING got bought by Scotia. And that. Is that what prompted you to start your own lender? Like when you were... Damn right, that is. Exactly. Right. So I saw this magic that can happen when a broker and a lender are on the same team and all the synergies that can come of that. And, and there's a trust, right? I mean, we trust our own agents and that just makes the process so much faster and smoother. And, you know, because we have salaried staff, they're not enticed to do fraud and all that. So it just makes everything come together really well. Right. Okay. So that actually makes a lot of sense. You have your own sort of internal, you move up the chain. So you go from brokering and you're like, Hey, if we own the lender, we get a piece of this. So I used to be at mortgage architects, lovely company. And I would sit in on some of these meetings where they would talk about the lender 
that they own, which is Radius. And I was actually shocked at how hard it is to make money as a lender. I think is that I, because I, I thought they printed money. I thought lenders were like, there, there's literally a machine in the back and just cash just stacking up. But it was actually yeah. surprising to me how hard it is. Like, I don't know if this, I think that might even be harder than being a mortgage broker is running a profitable lender. So from your guys, like how have you found switching now to this dual role of like the brokerage side and then the lender side? I, even if it was net break even, I would still do it because I want to control the client experience and I control it really well by being the lender. So bar that. Okay. But your, your analysis is not wrong. On origination, lenders make nothing. Okay? Right. It's really about the renewal. Okay, so what did we do? We, because True North is the lender, okay? So what we do is a lot of the servicing uh, we give back to the agent to do. So let's say a client calls in midterm and wants an early renewal. Okay, okay. What's just happening a ton right now, right? Yeah. So instead of, that client, a borrower will call Think Financial, it'll get rooted back to the originating agent. And the originating agent will negotiate with the client on a renewal. And then once that rate is produced, once they agree on a rate, our agent just presses a button, prints out a sheet, and hands it to the client. There's no, our agents don't have to sit there and flip it to another broke, another lender. So those sort of synergies. And it's less friction too for the client at the end yeah, of the day, right? Yeah, way less friction. It's literally, okay, we negotiate, here, sign this, done. That's it, okay? Or on renewals. When renewal comes in, uh, the client talks to the original agent and they negotiate. There's, here's the renewal sign, done. And it, it just so simple from that point of view. So it keeps our costs really low. So we, we found a lot of ways to, because you're not you're because you're you're operating a very unique model because in yeah. the U.S. it's much more common for a loan a small bank to have everything kind of in house and then of course they can get rid of some of those loans but you guys have both and because they're your employee that the originating broker then it's a little different like they're not going to be taking them over to someone else like MCAP or something you know yeah yeah and then you know like obviously on renewals we just kick ass because. No other broker even knows this deal is coming up for renewal. So we're not facing the competition. So from that point of view, early renewals, conversions, all those type of things are so simple. The way we submit documents internally, it's all in-house. And we have a lot of direct messaging systems between our agents and our underwriters. So all those things just allow us to do it cheaper, faster. Right. Do you? Okay, so I have a question on this is technical, but so if I'm a mortgage broker, mortgage agent working for you and I get a new deal in, if I hand it to my, is my underwriter work for True North or is my underwriter work for Think Financial? Am I dealing directly? How does that work? So, so I mean, they both actually work for the same corporation. So right. there's a separate corporation. When an agent submits a deal, they actually submit it in our CRM system. Okay, yeah. It goes into a queue and our agent's able to see where their deal is in the queue. And then it gets underwritten. It goes to the first available underwriter, unless the agent specifically requests. They can actually request a certain underwriter. So then it goes into that queue. It gets underwritten. And then then it gets assigned. And then, does that answer your question? I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So like, I guess I'm thinking like from my perspective, I'm running my mortgage company. There's yeah. me. I'm a salesperson. Like I've got my assistant, my processor. I give my file to my processor who cleans it all up, who then sends it to the lender. You don't have that layup so, level. Oh yeah. Okay. So um, that's what I'm. So, I guess that's what I'm saying. Is like there's no extra person in the middle because it's just like boom, it goes right to there. 
Yeah, two answers to that. So, so we have the store model, which are you know salaried agents plus commission and uh, a store based bonus. They kind of work in this team, and and so all in they'll they'll make somewhere between a hundred to one hundred sixty thousand dollars a year. So, they're good guys. They are they better be good enough to submit their deals clean directly to the the underwriters. And so what our underwriters can do is after they're kind of done the deal, they get to rank the agent. They actually give a grade to the agent on the quality of the submission. Okay. And then those agents that are in the top quartile, actually, their deals get moved to the front of the line. It's like this bonus. So if you want to spend your time making sure your deal looks good, well, you'll get faster service. Okay. Right. Fine. And then we also have our mobile mortgage brokers. Uh, and they kind of run out and they, they work on a kind of 50-50 split, bit of a salary too. And there we have uh, a central underwriting desk or we call it adjudicator. So the deals will be prepared by these mobile mortgage brokers, but it will be corrected and, and finalized by these adjudicators who could then choose to send it to Scotia, send it to TD or of course send it to Think Financial. So right. it depends which. Okay. So right now, are you guys seeing more purchases or refinance? What's your like, if you were to look at your... Okay, what you're seeing in your pipeline? Well, uh, a lot of purchases right now. And then we do a lot of switches. Our rates are pretty good, right? So we can win switches. And so we end up doing a lot of switches. Right. Okay. This was really how, I mean, we just t- briefly touched on the whole idea of owning a brokerage. And I would say, if you really want to do it, like, what would, you, what would your advice be? I'll, I'll say what I think after, but I, I'd love to hear your advice to somebody who's got this itch of, I need the challenge. I'm kind of bored. What would your advice be to that person? And I'll yeah. say what I think too. Like I said, you kind of have to have a clear path to a billion right now, anyways, right? And and but more important than that is, what is your competitive advantage? What is it that? You, what weapon do you have? What tool? What what moat do you have around your brokerage that is really competitive? Because you look out there and you see so many brokerages with the same splits, and and then then it's just a race. What do you call a race to the bottom? But it's a race on the bottom of the splits rather than a race to the bottom of the rates, right? So figure that out. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that the when I saw there was a big surge or the amalgamation, I called it, of small brokerages that did guys that did 40, 50 mil partnering up, then they go to two to 300, uh, is when lenders were like, whoa, you're not getting best rates in comp unless you hit a certain volume. And then people were, it seemed to force a, a bunch of companies to come together, you know, or a bunch of small yeah. companies to join up. So like my friend who built a $300 million company, it was his timing was perfect. And I think today you're from a cold start. If you're going to go into the marketplace in Canada and say, I'm going to open a brokerage, what's your, like, how are you going to compete against DLCs and, you know, all these other massive companies, unless you have something unique? Like if it's not unique, you are like, it's just, you're just going to be noise and nobody's going to pay attention. They're, They're not going to leave. People hate to change anything unless it's really compelling. Um, and there's just not enough margin. Like there's in the current models for it to be, make a lot of sense, I think. You know. Yeah, I, I think I, about speaking of lenders, I think it's a little wrong-headed to, I think it's all about the agent, not about the brokerage. So if I, right. I mean, as a lender, okay, and I look at who do I want deals from? I want deals from the actual agent who talks to the client that could put together the deal really well, not a sub-agent. You know, yeah, okay, there's 300 million. And then what, what ends up happening is my underwriters sit there training these five, $10 million brokers. Okay. Right. Well, that's super inefficient, right? I mean, they're taking twice, three times as long. I, that's why I think lenders that focus on individual performers way smarter. Yeah. 
I think it's a better model too, but I think that they're trying to like, how could I guarantee, like, how could I set certain targets? Like they got targets to hit and, um, well, this has been really helpful. So is there anything I should have asked you that I, you know, didn't ask, what would, you know, what would the last thing you'd like to share? Yeah. So I guess a message that there's some misunderstandings that I guess about True North over the years have kind of grown. One, we are really not on rate comparison sites and haven't been on for some time now. And we don't see that as being the future. Our average BIPs that we make on a deal, we, we get accused of rate buy-down. Yeah. We don't do that anywhere near as much as people think. Those are probably two, two big ones. If you were to say, I mean, if you ask yourself, Scott, if you were a restaurant, okay, what, what brand of restaurant would you be? What do you affiliate with? I would probably be like a small, I'd like to be an upscale, small restaurant that's in a community that's well-known in its community. I would not want to be a chain. I did just, it's just my personality. I'd be like- That's a really good point. Okay, so if you look at Ruth Chris's or Chris Ruth's, I can't remember which way it goes. It's elite steakhouse, right? So yeah. so yeah, great, high quality service, great product. Okay, fine, fine. And I actually see ourselves as something like Five Guys in price. So right. not the cheapest burger. I like actually quite like Five Guys, by the way. I love that. That's five. a side thing. Their French fries are ridiculous. Like they use the, oh, so well, good. Yeah, it's, um, except peanut oil, which means my son can't go there, but it's a great burger. And so ours is about the product. Here's the product. Five Guys in Front. It's about a product. Is this the cheapest product? Nope. But it is. And they always throw extra fries in, right? Yeah. And I see that's a lot of what we do. They have the same code of every Five Guys is the same. That's what we, we gun for and all that sort of stuff. So it isn't this uh, customized uh, a boutique restaurant might, might be, but it's still a really quality burger, right? And right. it's in here. This is why you come in for this burger. You come in for the rate, come in for the mortgage, full feature product. That's what I see it. But if you take that analogy a little further, so if a client walks in your door or walks in my door, who's he going to go with? The truth is, I know this. He's going to go with you. Okay, my guys make, you know, 150, 160, okay? But those guys doing 40, 50, 60 million, they're making three, four, 500. They're better, higher quality agents, okay? Right. And so I can't beat those guys. Even with my rates, I can't beat those guys. I can, however, beat... The lower age, the, the 90, the 90 below percent that? of them that are like, yeah, that's so actually really, that's a, that should almost be a clip, you know, that Dan Eisner, this is, you know, these guys and the, the people that are gone professional that are at that level are hard to beat, but the people yeah. that are the, so, the, you know, large group of them are going to, you're going to, you're going to yeah, eat their so lunch. If you want to say, how do you defend yourself against True North, stay as that individual broker, offer that incredible quality experience because I can't mimic that. Okay. Right. But if you want to get destroyed by me, just become a brokerage, right? Like, cause then your, then your quality experiences through these much less talented agents, unfortunately, may wow. I also add, I can kill banks. And that is our really our main competitor because they are not, those are talented guys. Right. No, no. Yeah. The bank killer. Yeah. That could be your new thing. The bank killer. <laughs> yeah. So, Okay, we'll wrap this up. So thank you, man. I really appreciate this and uh, appreciate your time. And yeah, it was a good discussion. It was lots of fun and good to get to just to hear your story in terms of how you grew it and stuff. So um, amazing. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. 
Hey, Broker Nation, thanks for checking out this episode. So hopefully you picked up some nuggets from Dan and just the wisdom that he has in building this massive mortgage company. If you're still trying to figure out though, you're like, hey, I want to get more realtor partners. I want to get them to refer me. I want to be able to show my value. You need to check out perfectrealtorpitch.com. It's a workshop that we created specifically to help you communicate value, build massive trust and rapport and generate referrals. And we've seen this work in every single market that we've tried it in. And it's just very, very powerful, very simple to, to learn how to do. So go to perfectrealtorpitch.com to check that out. That's perfectrealtorpitch.com. And thank you so much for being a listener. We really appreciate you.